0: Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 266.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to the show,
0: Dose of Leadership, episode 266. So happy you're tuning into the show, and I'm so excited to bring this episode to you. I finally get to talk to the one and only Juan Williams. Maybe you've seen Juan. If you watch Fox News, Fox The Five... You can see him uh, daily on there at uh, 5 o'clock Eastern time on The Five. He's a a former White House correspondent at The Washington Post, where he worked for over 21 years, and he's been a senior correspondent and a talk show host at NPR. In fact, that's where I first came across Juan Williams when he worked at NPR, and he's currently, like I said, the political analyst for Fox News and co-hosts that daily roundtable, one of my favorite shows, The Five, which I think has got to be difficult for him, Juan being the more liberal the most liberal member of the five. He's got to come prepared to that show every day. But I love Juan Williams, and um, I think he's uh, authentic, transparent, and uh, I just think he's a great guy, and it was an honor and a thrill to talk to him on the show. He writes a weekly column for The Hill, um, but we brought him on the show. I wanted him to come on the show because he he has a brand-new book out called We the People, which is the modern-day figures that have reshaped and affirm the founding father's vision of America. It's a great book, and of course, I'm a history buff. And I know if we we're talking about leadership, um, I think studying uh, the founding uh, of this nation, of the great uh, the greatness of this nation has always been top priority for me. You learn so many lessons in leadership, about character development and everything else. and but Juan is so great because he he looked at all of the kind of critical hot button items of the issues of the day. And he went backwards and found all the backstories and how do we get to that point? How do we get to this point in immigration? Why is it such a hot topic today? And it's just a fascinating read. It's a great book. If you have any interest in history and uh, any interest in um, some of the great you know, people who've made this country what it is today, including post-World War II or even the 20th century and beyond. It's it's a great book. I can't recommend it enough. And it, it was really fun to talk to Juan about life and leadership and working at Fox News and all that stuff. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Guys, I hope you're finding some value in Dose of Leadership. It is a great resource, one of the many resources out there in your leadership journey. And if you are finding some value, I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe to this show, download it to your smart device, leave a rating and review on Stitcher or iTunes. It would do so much for the visibility of the show, and appreciate all the feedback that I get from emails, hearing from you. It makes my day. I love hearing where you're at in your leadership journey. Reach out to me. Go to my website, doseofleadership.com or richardryerson.com, and you can contact me through there, and you can also learn more about my speaking and coaching services, my mastermind uh, that I hold periodically and the one I'm trying to fill in a a 12-month mastermind with five select individuals. If you're interested in that, the Achieving Significance Mastermind, all of that you can find at richardryerson.com. And if you want to financially support this show, again, this is a free show. It is my free offering to build a tribe and to help you in your leadership journey. You can support us at patreon.com. You can find out more at doseofleadership.com and click on the support us on Patreon link in the left-hand sidebar or in the menu bar. Or you can go to patreon.com slash Leadership. Any support that you provide the show would be highly appreciative. It helps keep the show going and growing. So, and thanks for tuning into the show. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Juan Williams. And here he is without further ado. Juan Williams talking about We and People's brand new book on Dose of Leadership. Well, what an honor to have the one and only Juan Williams on Dose of Leadership. Juan, welcome to the show.
2: Richard, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting
0: me. Man, I was so pumped when you, um, said yes to the show. I've been a fan of you for a long time. I got to tell you, um, you know, though we may not agree politically on a lot of things, I am just a huge fan of you because you know why? Because when you got it, I, when you, when I watch you on the five, I got to think, my God, that would be difficult every day to be kind of almost the the sole liberal on that panel. You (laughs) got to come prepared every day, don't you?
2: You do. (laughs) Because otherwise, you really would get steamrolled. you get run over, man. Um, but, you know, the thing about it is, it requires you to not only prepare, but think about the various angles, um, because I've got four uh, classy competitors there who bring different perspectives to the table. They're all Republican and conservative, but it's not the case that they all agree. I mean, obviously, yeah. in this political season of 2016... You have people who support Trump and people who oppose Trump.
0: But it's got to be exciting, though. You know, I agree. But it's got to be exciting to come to work, I would imagine, as opposed to everywhere else you've been. Is it the most fun that you've had?
2: Oh, I think so. You know, it's funny. I, as you say, I've been a lot of places in media. I'm 62 years old, and I started out at a small paper, but it's not. It wasn't that small. It was the biggest paper in Philadelphia called the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin long gone we don't have afternoon papers in america anymore and then i went to the washington post and then while i was at the washington post i started doing some television doing documentary work for pbs and then i went to cnn and then i went to npr and fox yeah and by far fox is the most fun i think it's the most fun to watch uh but i also think that for people who are into media, it's also fun to listen to because the debate is intense. I mean, that's why I say you can get run over if you don't know what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, but even it does seem, even though it's intense, there, there seems to be a level of respectability there. I mean, it seems like you guys really do enjoy each other and love each other as, as human beings. Am, am I right on that?
2: Well, I know I do. I don't think everybody does. <laughs> but <laughs> I, 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 you know, one of the things about this business is, I've, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I've been fired. I've, you know, yep. I've had ups and downs. Yep. And so for me, a lot of it is now at this stage in my career, I just appreciate these people. Uh, and so I don't, I, I tend to avoid a lot of the sort of, you know, gossipy type stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, I just think this is a great opportunity and Fox is a great place because gosh, what a platform. I mm-hmm.
3: mean,
0: Richard,
2: you think about it, you know, we reach millions of people every day.
0: Yeah, well, and it's and what I love about I, I kind of miss the. It reminds me of you know the um, you know a Thanksgiving dinner debate where everybody would kind of you you know you you respected each other, but you would have these kind of intense conversations sometimes, right? And it didn't have to be personal, but you would if you were passionate about what you stood for and you believed in. I, I always appreciated that when I would be around those conversations where you stood up for what you believed, and it didn't get personal. And um, I just love that passion anyway, you know, of, of sticking, Yeah,
2: oh, you no. Know. You know what I like? I think it's when you are engaged. Yeah. You know, there's a phrase called join the debate. So it doesn't have to be like you're mocking the other person or you're putting them down or calling them, you know, like Archie Bunger, hey, you meathead. Right. It really is about are some smart people bringing something that causes me, provokes me, engages my mind, causes me to join the debate. And that's what I get at Fox. Yeah. I, by the way, you talked about Thanksgiving dinner. So, Richard, I have two sons who are conservatives, right. who are Republicans. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so, imagine my dinner table. We always—I mean, they—they try—they tend to take it easy on the old man, but I—I <laughs> I value listening to them so much.
0: Yeah, that's funny. I saw that. That you're—you're. You're, I said, well, I wonder what that dynamic is like with his kids being so conservative. And Wandsbury liberal. What is that like? But you know, that's what that's what makes this country great, though. You know, I mean, that's what it's all about, in a sense. I mean, that's really what it comes down to.
2: Well, and I think also you got to realize that if you're sitting next to Sean Hannity, uh, it's easy to be more liberal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You can be a moderate conservative and seem liberal next to Sean. That's for sure. That's yeah. that's exactly right. Well, gosh, how fun is that? And you, you, so you were born in Panama, right? Is in, yes, and then with. The first time you came to the United States, I heard you talking the other day on the Five about um, kind of what age you could kind of wish you could go back to, and you were talking about how you went to a preparatory school. Was that the first time you came to the United States when you went to that school?
2: No, no, no. My mom brought three kids when I was just turned four years old. Oh, four. Okay. My apologies. Uh, yeah. So I grew up in Brooklyn. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then I won a scholarship, which you know, to me was like, wow, I didn't even know they had such a thing, and all of a sudden. I left the big city and what was a very dicey neighborhood. All of a sudden, I'm up in upstate New York and green pastures, you know, which, right. wow, this is a revelation. I didn't know such a place existed.
0: How fun. And so would you? And how did you get interested in uh, journalism?
2: I was interested right from the start. And I think this is part of the immigrant child experience, which is you learn the world around you through newspapers and media and reading and talking to people and I just thought, you know, I love reading even when it came to sports, and I'm a big sports fan, reading sports stories in different newspapers so you can see different writers talking about the same event but bringing different perspectives to it and different richness and better writing in some cases. You can see which guy really got in the locker room, which guy looks like he was hurrying to get out the door. And i Always wanted to do it. So I was the editor of my junior high school paper, my high school paper. When I went to college, I went to work at that Philadelphia Evening Bulletin I mentioned to you earlier, the afternoon paper. And then I worked at newspapers all through college.
0: Well, it's a, it's a gift, obviously, to, you know, I'm always envious of people that like yourself that can, that can write. I and mean, your writing is so painful. It's such a painful process for me. And once I get going, it, it can start. But I suppose you would say the same thing. It, it hurts to write. But I mean, I think it's such an, an integral part of who you are. But um, it's so critical, though, to, to tell those stories, because everybody's got one, you know?
2: I think so. And, you know, I once heard someone say that as you get older, you become a better writer. And I thought, how is that? Because like a mathematician, they say mathematicians are best when they're young. But somehow writers get better when they're old. And a, a part of that is what you were referring to, Richard, which is that when you're younger, I think the pain of the writing is what dominates. Yeah. But as you get older, I think you have more a sense of, I have something to say. Yeah. And if you really have something that you want to get out, then it feels more like a relief. Mm. Like you're writing something that you want said and you want heard and you want read. Um. And you, you, you value, as I was saying about Fox earlier, you value the platform and that people are there to react to you. I mean, when I pray... I ask God to, you know, help me have voice. Yeah. And so, to me, that's a writing gives you tremendous voice. The the book I just wrote, "We the People," I think that'll stay around way beyond me. And I think that's a that's one of the things we aim for in life is to do things that will have value for people who come afterwards.
0: Yeah, and a great book, by the way, is a great transition to it. You know, "We the People." Um, the reason why I wrote uh, reached out to you. A great book. I'm a student of history. I'm a fan of history, and what's so great about this book is, like we talked about, everybody has a story. The great backstories. There's so much I learned uh, just from looking. I mean, from from figures that that uh, I wouldn't have even thought about, and um, the great backstories behind it. Even from the immigration side of which I thought I was pretty well versed on, but it, just even hearing kind of um, how much the Kennedys did shape the immigration form to what we're even dealing with today. I and mean, it's a, it's an amazing. It's an amazing book. I mean, what's the, what was the genesis of it? Why why did you decide to write this?
2: Well, you know, just on the immigration story for a second, I think because that'll illuminate why I decided to write it. I was trying to, in the daily life that I lead, which is national politics, try to understand where some of these dynamic issues that drive our po- politics today come from. Where, you know, why is it that immigration, as we were just discussing, why is that such a powerhouse that it elevated for example donald trump Mm -hmm. right from the start in the republican primaries. that was his issue you know build a wall uh... we're getting cheated on these trade deals with this with these foreign countries uh... ban immigrants of muslim heritage from coming into this country that kind of thing that has played well and elevated him but it's not just that it's things like income inequality and the trade deals that i was just talking about and Who gets hurt in those deals and globalization and outsourcing of jobs? Where did this idea come from? Why is it that American corporations decided to go that route? Or you think about something like the new coalition of voters in this country. You know, who who are these people? Where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. And how is it that all of a sudden a group of women... Uh, young people, minorities, are able to elect a president? Where'd that come from, and where does the response come from? So, to me, it was like thinking through, wow, there's so much change going on on all these levels, creating all these issues. And I know Americans, especially older Americans, are saying, I feel like a stranger in my own country right. these days. Right, right. And they're saying, you know, what happened to the America I grew up in? So I thought to myself, well, how do you tell people the story of this tremendous change and i thought you know the founding fathers let's bring them into the story as a point of contrast what if they came to america in 2016 what would they think of the america that we live in and the america that still abides by the constitution they created right so how would they understand it and so i thought okay i want to tell them the story let's say of immigration richard oh But how do I tell that story? I'm not going to really start with, oh, it's a big issue in 2016. I would go back and I'd say, well, hmm, is it the George W. Bush effort at immigration reform in 06? "Hmm, No, I don't think that was it, although that got stopped and was controversial. Is it Ronald Reagan passing immigration reform back in the 1980s? Well, some people have feelings about that, but at the time it wasn't that controversial. What was controversial? What really is the root of that issue? takes you back to the 1965 Immigration Reform Act, right? and so the question then becomes, well, who did that, and why did they do it? And the answer, as you were saying, Richard, is the Kennedy brothers, mm-hmm. President John F. Kennedy and his brother, who then became a senator, Senator Ted Kennedy, and the reason is they had been hearing from their grandfather about their great-grandparents coming to the United States, to Boston, how they were treated badly by the the Protestant elite British heritage people uh, in that city, and then you find that the Jewish community identifies with that hurt because so many Jewish people trying to flee Nazi oppression in Germany, and then later the Holocaust found they couldn't get into the United States because of limits on immigration, and you have people from places like Italy and Greece who wanted to bring family members over, but found that the immigration law was really intended for people who lived in Britain, France, maybe Germany, but that was about it. And they said, hey, how come we can't get our family over here? All of these forces come together, especially after President Kennedy is assassinated and Ted Kennedy in the Senate uses the power of his his, his brother's assassination and the, the, the grievance that so many people felt about the immigration system to say, let's open it up not only open it up in terms of numbers and admitting more people, but let's open immigration to the United States to people from around the world, Richard. And that really revolutionized it. And there was opposition right from the start. There were people who said, hey, this is going to hurt our traditions. This is going to change our country by bringing in all kinds of people. And what about the workers, you know, competition for our workers? Um, But it passed, and I think it's that moment that has led to this moment uh, and where we have immigration now at, at heights, you know, in terms of absolute numbers, we've never seen immigration like we have today in America.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a fascinating uh, look at it because it's almost like even if you just take the sound bites and even the, um, you know, even what you're even taught in school. You know, I'm a product. I was born in '68, and so you go up and you think, oh, we're just one big melting pot, and it's always been that way. But it hasn't. It was, it You're right. It was. It was tailored towards just bringing in white Anglo Saxons. Really, is what it. What it. Uh, what it was kind of geared towards, and and it, it kind of even was surprising to me that 1965 really was the the kind of the turning point to when it really started to become a melting pot. And, am I? I know there's more to it than that, but that's kind of my takeaway on it. Am I on? Am I no, I think of that?
2: I think that is the takeaway. I think that was the watershed moment. And today, when people talk about that, they say, you know, that's kind of the undiscovered moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, even as we're all, you know talking about building a wall or, you know, why do we have so many immigrants, how does it affect our workers, why do we have globalization and trade, I think you got to go back to that moment because it gets you behind the headlines, it helps you to understand where we are in 2016. Uh, You know, we mentioned the Founding Fathers earlier as a point of contrast. The Founding Fathers passed a law that banned anybody but whites and principally people from Britain. ban anyone but those folks from coming to the United States. So imagine their stunning surprise that they walked down the street today and saw, my goodness, it's not just black and white people. My gosh, Hispanics is the second largest right. group, racial group in the country. Or look at the fact that Asians are these largest now group of immigrants coming into the country. They'd be like stunned. They'd be like, wow, how did that happen? And I, the book we the people. I try to explain to them this is how it happened.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a fun it's a fun question. I've always asked that. What would they think if they if they say you know get past the how they'd probably freak out over the technological advancements? But yeah, from the from the traditions, the philosophical you know underpinnings of the Constitution, what would they say? Would they be happy? Would they be satisfied? Would they be proud? Would they be shocked? Would they be upset? What would they, you know? It's a it's a fun question to to ask. But even the question when I hear today, people saying, Oh, well, it's not, it's, this isn't the country I grew up in. I understand that in certain sense, you know, sometimes it, you know, and I can see why people are frustrated, um, because change is inevitable and maybe something to change has happened too fast. But at the same time, I also go back to, I think this, I mean, it, it's almost kind of a, a false argument because change is continuous. I mean, everything is always evolving. And I think at its underpinning and its core that the country is definitely going to survive. Any changes that we're seeing now I mean I think I mean I feel optim I didn't feel as optimistic four years ago, but as as I pulled away from kind of the the mainstream media push and really started diving in and reading books like this and having conversations and listening, this country is pretty resilient We've we've gone through worse. Would you agree or disagree
2: absolutely yeah. well just stop and think so if the book is about change, you got to say to yourself, wow, we have been through well, maybe the best analogy would be waves, you know, like yeah, waves, waves coming to yeah. shore. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen everything from westward expansion uh, to civil war to industrialization, reconstruction to world wars, Great Depression, post-war, Cold War, <laughs> you know, and then all the economic shifts that we've gone through from, you know, going from, you know, the service industry to high tech. Uh, now people say we're more in terms of the chemistry and the physics of it, you know, especially the pharmaceutical industry and that kind of thing, uh, as well as the, the technology breakthroughs that we're experiencing. So in all these ways, we have, the country has survived and thrived. We are the dominant economy. We're the dominant military force in the world. And one of the things that gives me reason to be optimistic, uh, To use the phrase you used, Richard, I I really felt that, is while people say to me, you know, I worry about America because I think all these people coming in and all these young people and some of them are so rude and I don't think this is going well and I don't like this politician and I'm angry at the political establishment in this country. And then I think, you know, when you talk to young people, they are so revved up to get going. Yeah. They want to succeed in America, and I don't care where they come from. I don't care what color they are. I don't care if they're rich or poor. They believe in the American dream today, right? In a way that is, it just makes your eyes water. You just mm-hmm. think, "Wow!" I didn't, you know, because you look at some of these kids, and you think, "Oh, look at the language. Are they really disciplined? Are they willing to work hard?" Yes.
3: Yeah. I,
0: I don't agree think with there's
2: you. any question.
0: I agree with you a hundred percent. And the more you know, I. I it just becomes a sound bite. Of someone saying, Oh, the millennials, this, they don't understand. And I'm like, you know what? I know a lot of millennials and I, you know, I'm 47 going on 48. And I can tell you, I got a couple mentors that are millennials. If that means anything, you know, I have a lot of mentors right. in my life and you're right there. And, and I think there's a spirit of, of entrepreneurship. That's, um, you know, you saw a big wave in the eighties with Reagan. And I remember that's kind of when I go up and I was, you know, but now there's a spirit of entrepreneurship, but it's, but the spirit is behind. Yeah, financial and time, economic and time freedom, but it's about doing something bigger than themselves, which I didn't really right. see in the '80s. I think there's a big difference there. I, I honestly believe that there is some uh, something afoot that is very positive.
2: I agree, and people talk about the populism behind a Donald Trump, but even behind a Bernie Sanders on the left, right? right. Uh huh. But that energy, that sense of civic commitment, wanting to create a better America, no matter what perspective you come from, I think in there on both sides is this optimism that people, one, love America, and two, think they can make it better. And I'm all for it.
0: I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. And that's why, I don't know, it's a crazy political season for sure. And and it's, on one hand, you go, Rally, is this the best that we, we can get, you know, with all yeah. these people? You know, you're like, what, really? <laughs> But on the one hand, you know, I still go back, you know, we will start because I do surround myself with these people who are like you, like you said, um, are passionate about doing something bigger than themselves, doing something they know they're, they're aware that they're on the greatest country in the planet. And gosh, I'm in, I do a lot of interviews with, um, oh, this hotel firm and I, I do an internal show for them. And we talk to their line level employees and you'd be amazed of all the, their stories. They're, they're immigrants. And like the, she packed up this one, she was 20 years old and left Poland and came to the United States, couldn't speak a lick of English. Another guy, he, you know, his, his mom came here from uh, El Salvador when he was three, kept, and he brought him over when he was 10 or 13. He couldn't speak a lick of English. Los Angeles High School made a name for himself, and they love this country. So, I mean, that's that's what gets me excited, you know, when you hear those oh, stories. You know, we just...
2: get the best The best of the world co- wants to come to the United States, and they believe in the American dream. They love, and this is going to sound so wild to some folks, given all that's going on in this political season, but they love the political stability of America.
0: Right, right.
2: Compare us to some of these countries that go through coups and people getting thrown in jail and all that. They think, wow, I want to be in America.
0: Right. It's true. It's so true. Yeah. God, there's so many stories in this book. I mean, so many surprises. One big surprise for me uh that I just – it was a fun chapter to read was the one where you're talking about Harry Hay and, and um uh, Barry Goldwater. And yeah. how Barry Goldwater was really a champion for gay rights. Very interesting. Um Talk about that.
2: Well, you know – so, much, so many people identify him as Mr. Conservative. Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964, lost in a landslide. But remember, the person who gave the defining speech of that campaign was Ronald Reagan.
3: Yeah. And
2: Ronald Reagan admired Barry Goldwater. So when you think of conservatism at its root, so many people would say, go talk to Barry Goldwater, look at that 1964 speech by Ronald Reagan. Look at Reagan's two terms in office that was born from, really, the remains of the Goldwater campaign. And, of course, then people think, well, what about the social issues? They're very conservative. But no, late in his life, Goldwater had a, I think it was a grandson who was gay and became an advocate, an advocate for gay rights in America, especially within the Constitution. He said equal rights apply to all and government and busybody shouldn't have any role in the bedroom. And so Barry Goldwater, Mr. Conservative, becomes a leading voice for gay rights in America. Uh, That, to me, is one of the more stunning realities in the book. It's an eye-opener. And then you mentioned Richard Harry Hay. Again, it's not that Goldwater is the start of the story, it's Harry Hay. And Harry Hay, back in the 1950s, uh, is one of the first people to try to organize gay people to say, we have to stand up for our rights, and in this case stand up to persecution that might be police raids on gay clubs and gay bars and the like, uh, put pressure on politicians to protect the rights of gay people to respect their rights and not allow people to extort money or to abuse us to beat us up on the street, that kind of thing. And his groups start out in secret. He tries to push them more towards the the light of public scrutiny, but he doesn't quite get there. But that effort has the seeds, then, that blossom when you come to the Stonewall riots in the late 60s in New York City. Stonewall was a bar in New York City, and when the police raid that bar, the gays inside respond with a violent protest that turns into a riot— And lasts for several days and suddenly you then see organizing from the gay community for the first time in public trying to exercise political and economic pressure in a way that says we are not to be scorned we feel like we have something to say and we are not going to hide in the shadows forever it changes the conversation in America that we know today in terms of the Supreme Court recent Supreme Court decision that allowed for gay marriage when I was a young fellow, I could never have imagined that that would happen. Yeah. That took vision, that took organizing, that took political muscle, and that's the reality we live with in 2016. Richard, imagine the founding fathers coming back. George Washington, who drummed the man out of the Continental Army for gay behavior, imagine him coming back and walking down the street and seeing men holding hands. He would say, What an abomination. What are you doing? <laughs> right. But. It's a, it's a different place, and again, we the people helps you to understand how we got to this place. Yeah, where we live in America in 2016.
0: It's a fun book; it really is. I mean, it's just because of, because of all the characters, I can't imagine how you picked all. I mean, there's so many from you know, like we said, Barry Goldwater to to what General Westmoreland, Milton Friedman, uh, Bill Bratton. I mean, that was a that was a uh, an interesting chapter too. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, I makes, think
2: I think that's the number one surprise I'm hearing from people that. They say you know you've created a new Mount Rushmore, right? so instead of Lincoln, Jefferson, Washington, and Teddy Roosevelt on the cover of the book, I've got Eleanor Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, Martin Luther King, and Billy Graham right so people say to me, okay, I kind of I know those people really made a difference in American life, but Bill Bratton, the police commissioner? And I'd say, oh, absolutely. The founding fathers, if they came back and and saw cameras on highway lampposts and and, and big city streets, they'd be like, what are you guys doing? You have the government watching you every moment? They would be, like, outraged. So you'd have to say, well, I want you to meet Bill Bratton, because Bratton brought forth the idea of computer statistical models of crime, where crimes occur, the time of day they occur, who is perpetrating those crimes, and that allows him then to predict crimes, position police, to use surveillance cameras, to use even sound detecting devices, all in service to preventing crime. And now we have very low crime rates, but we still have fear of terrorists and fear mm-hmm. of crime as part of our national heartbeat. But to me, the person who has changed us to the point where Americans are willing to accept all of this surveillance right. and, and crime preventing activity is Bill Bratton.
0: Yeah, uh, it's just—I don't know how you did all the research on it. How did you? I mean, did you pick a topic and and, and go backwards, or did you pick an individual and see where it led you?
2: Great question. I picked the topic. I picked a, an issue, so I could sense, you know. The things that make people uncomfortable, the things that are driving political discourse in the country in 2016 is where I started. And then I worked backwards to try to find, well, who created that change? You mentioned a moment ago, you're surprised that Milton Friedman, a variety of characters whose stories are told in We the People. And in the case of Milton Friedman, it was looking at, oh, gee, why is it that income inequality is such a big issue in America today? and You know, some people say it's winner's take all. Where'd that come from? And, you know, you go back, you talk to people about economic issues, you talk to the experts, you talk to the politicians, and the name that comes up most often, Milton Friedman. And Friedman was a guy who believed, Richard, he didn't believe in national parks, he didn't believe in a draft, he said, you know, military should be voluntary, you got people who do it, want to do it. He believed that marijuana should be legal, drugs legal. He says, that's that's your business. So he's pretty much a libertarian in those ways. But when it came to economic issues, he said, corporations have one job, make money for their shareholders. Not worry about the employees and worry about unions, not even worry about the customers. He said, if the customer doesn't like what you're delivering, then they're going to go elsewhere. you got to deliver for the shareholders. And if you deliver for the shareholder and for the executives who understand what the shareholders want, you'll be happy. And I think that has led to not only high pay for CEOs and high returns on Wall Street, but it's led, of course, to globalization and lots of the arguments about what's happened to blue-collar workers in the country yeah. and uh, competitive wages going down in the country.
0: Yeah, no, I, you're right. I mean, and I was... Before even reading uh, reading this book, you know, think well, I would be be the guy quoting Milton Friedman about you know, but you're right. I mean, you bring up some other issues that I don't necessarily agree with Milton Friedman, particularly about. And I think where you see a lot of um in this entrepreneurship wave that you see now, it's kind of almost in the face of Milton Friedman in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. I just love this book. I think it's a great. If if anybody's a student of history, and I think everybody should be, because when you look at history, um, it prevents you from repeating. Uh, the same mistakes, but it also reminds me the, the big takeaway I got from this. It reminds me is like, hey, you know what? We're always in flux. And it's kind of like saying, um, you know, it, it's not like it used to be. Well, nothing ever is, right? And I don't think that you can. The other thing, too, that had me thinking, particularly in the beginning of the chapter or the beginning of the book, when, you know, everybody makes that argument of like, hey, you know, uh, we wrote this a constitution, all men are created equal. Um, but then they were slave owners. And I, it started me thinking. And even when you were talking about Barry Goldwater and Harry Hay there, it's like, do you think when they wrote the Constitution, and I know that when I read John Adams and I studied John Adams, I know that, he, you know, he's vehemently opposed to, um, slavery. And I guess the argument goes at the time when they were writing and it is like, there was, there were a handful of folks like a John Adams that knew, okay, to keep the union together, I gotta keep, you know, we we can't abolish slavery at at this moment. Do you think a lot of people, when they were writing it, knew that eventually it would be abolished, or was it just was there no way to even look that far ahead when they were writing the Constitution? Do you think?
2: Oh well, I think they knew a lot about slavery. It was a reality. Many right. of them were slave owners, as you said. But they also understood that it was such a divisive issue that it would have meant that they couldn't affirm a constitution. They couldn't ratify right. it because they they wouldn't have the backing from enough states. So what they said was, let's put that at least 20 years down the the path. Uh, Nobody will bother slavery for the next 20 years. So they were very aware of the power and the divisive power of that issue when they wrote the Constitution of the United States of America. But remember, the Constitution, this is one of the big arguments about it. Is it a living document or not? A lot of people say, no, no, we want you to adhere to the spirit to the letter, to the originalist intent of the Constitution. But part of that intent, Richard, was that it would allow for the flexibility of amendments. We all know about constitutional amendments. And so what you get into then is something that would allow not only the end of slavery, but allow, for example, women to get the right to right, vote. exactly. We didn't mention it, but, you know, there are no women signing the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> there are no women at the Constitutional Convention. I think one of the biggest changes that I write about in We the People is the power of women today as voters, mm-hmm. as half of the workforce, as people on the Supreme Court, the Attorney General. I mean, you you stop and think about it. Wow. Most of the people in America's colleges today are mm-hmm. women. This right. is like, to the Founding Fathers, this would be incomprehensible. They'd be dizzy.
0: Yeah, right. But see, that's why I think we should—this is what frustrates me about the argument today, you know, and I have— Four kids. My oldest is nineteen. My youngest is, or my second oldest is seventeen, mm-hmm. and we get in these great debates too. But like I, t- you know, it, it's the, kind of the lazy argument. I would, I think, because of the system that we had, and because of the way the Constitution was written, as you said, and I, I agree with you. That it's a living, breathing document that it's allowed us to to advance as far. If You know, why did it change so fast? I mean, we basically leapt ahead five thousand years from a technological to a spiritual to a philosophical standpoint once that constitution put into place. And I think it's because of, of the American idea, right? I mean that's and I think I it agree. should I think it should be celebrated and it seems, and we and what I, what frustrates me is we always go back and like, yeah, don't celebrate these individuals because they were slave owners. Well yeah, but we're all imperfect, right? I mean in, in Oh my it, gosh. You know
2: this is so ridiculous to me. So imagine, then, you know, the way we're talking about the Founding Fathers. Just stop for a second and and appreciate that something these human beings, flesh-and-blood people with flaws living in a certain time with certain values that seem to us now, you know, ancient, maybe outdated, anachronistic, but just stop and think, they created something, the Constitution, that has endured through all the what we call waves of change in this conversation, that has allowed us to build on that base that foundation right. right and create a stable political and economic structure that has grown to be the greatest in the world that to me is so inspiring and you know we are flesh and blood so i imagine that you know even a generation from now people will say well goodness gracious how could they have done this or that and you stop and think and say you know you guys aren't living in this time you didn't understand who we are and the pressures and what we had inherited in our level of understanding, and we didn't have the technology maybe that you have. We could, I could go on in that vein. But I think to somehow go back and condemn the Founding Fathers uh, because they were slave owners, again, is not to appreciate that they're human beings, they're, they have flaws, but guess what? They're living in a certain time, they're responding to certain impulses, and um, they did the best they could in their time, and I think it was pretty good what they did. In fact, it has endured
0: right and it's allowed us to be where we're at today and it and we'll continue Absolutely. I, and i believe that no i love it and that's, and that's really why i think the book is is necessary reading because it it gives me when you get bombarded with all the the 24-hour news cycle and the sound bites and you know the donald trumpisms or the ted Cruz-isms or the hillary Cl- clinton all this stuff and you get exhausted and you see it you go back and you read something like this it reminds you of where you came from. And there, there's always more to the story than what you're seeing in the soundbite. And that's why I think it's such a great book, Juan. And, and I, I just got to congratulate you on the book. It's a it's, a, it's a, a great piece of work.
2: Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Thanks so much.
0: Hey, as we wrap up here, I'm always curious. Who are your heroes? Whose shoulders are you standing on?
2: Well, obviously my parents. You know, I mean, the idea... I, it's hard for me to even understand that, you know, my, my dad was in his... Uh, sixties, when he came to the United States, my mom in her fifties, when I, uh, when she came to the United States and, um, the idea that you're going to make such an effort, uh, you know, leave behind friends and family, come to a strange place because you want your children to have an education. You want your children to have opportunities. I have very high regard for that. I just think that was a game changer. Yeah. In fact, I dedicate the book to, to my folks for that reason. Um, but, You know, if you're talking in political terms, I was so lucky as to cover Ronald Reagan uh, for the Washington Post, cover the White House during that era, and I always thought thought of him as a heroic figure and uh, someone who was always kind to me. And similarly, I think of so many people, uh, you know, my first editor at the Washington Post, a man named Herbert Benton, an editor also I had at the Evening Bulls, and a man named Sam Boyle. Uh, These people, for me, are you know in my life inspiring, demanding, um, but they built me, and I just I'm so appreciative, and and to this day I try to be kind to other folks because I, they were so kind to me.
0: Love it, well Juan, I love you. I love your authenticity. I love uh, what you do and and your principles that you stand on, and and you and you, even though like I said I don't agree always with you politically, I, but I, I love the authenticity, the transparency. The vulnerability that you project, and those to me are leadership qualities that we all need to profess to, and and I'm just honored that you came on the show.
2: Well, I'm delighted you had me. Thanks for inviting me, Richard. Yeah,
0: and I'll have links to your book, and anything else you want people to link to you, reach out to you, or Twitter, anything? Well, you know,
2: I write a column every week for The Hill newspaper. If folks are online, they want to see what's going on inside Washington politics, uh, please go to thehill.com.
0: All
1: right, I'll have links. Again, thanks for coming on the show, Juan.
2: You're welcome, Richard.
1: He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.